The Axe of the Blood God. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cap Bailey, and joining me today is our editor-in-chief, Jeremy Parrish. Hi. Do we have an unofficial RPG podcast? You know, you're the second one to make that joke on this podcast. It's not a joke. It's a, it's a genuine question. Well, there might be a podcast underground that... Yeah, I'm wondering, like, are you guys doing things behind my back that I'm not even aware of? If so, congratulations. That's very sneaky. There may be a podcast underground where our flagship podcast currently resides, but um, yeah, so today we have a ton of RPG news to be talking about. That's why I have you on the show, Jeremy. Lots of stuff coming out of the Nintendo Direct. And a little later, I have an interview with Exceeds localizer Jessica Chavez, and we're going to be talking about Trails in the Sky, second chapter. But let's get right down to it. Yesterday, um, the news that a lot of people have been waiting for for, what, two years now at this point, um, finally came around. Dragon Quest Seven and Dragon Quest Eight are coming out on the Nintendo 3DS. It's actually people... been three years since Dragon Quest Seven hit 3DS, if you can believe yeah. that. Really? Three years? I thought it came out in 2013. No, it came out in... It might have been very early 2013, but I think it was late 2012 because I was, uh, 1up.com was still a thing and I did a video hands on of the game for it that I think is still out on YouTube. Uh, so yes, it's actually, it, it predates us gamer. So that's, that's almost three years now. That tells you kind of all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of legitimate worry about Dragon Quest seven <laughs> never making it out to the U.S. Now that it's finally been confirmed, what are your kind of reactions, Jeremy? Oh, I'm I'm glad. I've uh, you know, I have these big gaps in my Dragon Quest experience and uh when Dragon Quest 7 came out, I was still in this kind of like, wow, that series is an archaic relic. It shouldn't exist. It's stupid. So I didn't play 7 and then 8 came out and I just didn't have time. So uh, yeah, so I've missed both of those, so I'm looking forward to having the chance to play them. Especially since 7, by all accounts, is um, a more streamlined and intuitive game on 3DS. The The PlayStation version has uh, a reputation for being pretty obtuse. Uh, there's There are game elements that were super unfriendly and kind of wasted your time, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to not having to worry about those. Yeah, Dragon Quest Seven has, as you said, a bit of a reputation. Uh, really slow to start, very slow opening. And when it came out, I think I think it came out here in two thousand. Um, it certainly didn't do itself any favors because people were automatically comparing it to, well, Final Fantasy Seven and Final Fantasy Eight, fair or not. And it definitely at that time looked like a step down from those games. I remember back in 2000 being really excited to play Dragon Quest VII because I recognized the name, like I I knew the name Dragon Warrior from the NES days, even if I hadn't really been on that train. Um, And then, like so many other Americans, I just didn't pick it up. 
and it kind of fell to the wayside. Yeah, the irony is that I did pick up Dragon Quest Seven, but I just like it was a huge game, and I I knew it was super slow paced, so I never actually really played more than an hour or two of it. it so had that, it had that um. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go for it. I was going to say it had the same sort of turn off uh, effect as. Uh, a lot of other NX games of the era, including, sorry, Valkyrie Profile and Star Ocean <laughs> Second Story, which is that I played the first hour of all those games and it was like, uh, they're still just talking and I'm not really like getting super hooked on this. It's kind of confusing. Um, it's kind of slow. I just would like to, you know, see some action, do something. So all of those games, I guess I was just more impatient in my younger days, but I, I gave up on all of those. So anyway, this will be a chance to rectify that uh, that grievous failing of mine. So that's good. But yeah, Dragon Quest Seven had um, it had a really sort of drawn out development cycle. Uh, it was announced for PlayStation right around the same time that Square SquareSoft said, "Yeah, we're taking Final Fantasy Seven to PlayStation." Uh, but Final Fantasy Seven came out in 1997. It was like a year and a half in development. Dragon Quest Seven, uh, like you said, was 2000. It might have been 1999 in Japan, but in any case, it was like four or five years in development, and uh, it it would have looked pretty dated if it had come out at the same time as Final Fantasy Seven. But coming out three years later, it was just like, wow, you guys really put this out as a big blockbuster game. That's okay, okay, sure, why not? Um, yeah, it, it didn't, it, it, the, the, the protracted development cycle did not do it any favors. No, definitely not. Um, Dragon Quest Eight on the 3DS, I will admit that I'm not super familiar with the port. I mean, <clears throat> I'm obviously familiar with the original game. Um, did they manage to get everything into the 3DS version? Um, how familiar are you with the port? I am not that familiar with it, but I know that it has orchestral music. It has voice acting. Both of those are things that were added to the American version of the PS2 game. So that's kind of become the official version of Dragon Quest VIII now, rather than the PCM music and the uh, lack of voices. Um, so they've managed to keep that. I know that there are some compromises in terms of the the overall visual design, um, you know, Dragon Quest VIII had this kind of big 3D immersive world with really long, uh, line of sight, especially for a PS2 game. And that has been lost on, on 3DS. Uh, it still has a long line of sight, but there's a lot of pop-ins. So you'll look out on the horizon and it's just kind of like this bare horizon. And then as you get close to a point, the trees will start to appear and the lakes and stuff like that. So... It, it definitely suffers from some visual degradation, despite the fact that the 3DS really should be more powerful than PS2, but what can you do? Um, so you you take some good, you take some bad. It's the facts of life. Well, as we all know, it's not always like a straight line of, oh, this, this system is more powerful in every respect. I mean, I've, the 3DS is about comparable to the PS2. But yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it, it's it's give and take. It's a it's a mobile processor, so you know, an ARM processor. So it specializes in different things than the PlayStation Two chip did. The the, the was that cell processor? 
No, the emotion engine. That's it. Um, so, you know, different capabilities, different specialties, but I'm still confident that it will be a very good Dragon Quest game. I think that it has, it's got, it's done away with random encounters. I think you see, uh, critters <laughs> on the world map before you fight them, like in Dragon Quest 9. So that's, hmm. yeah. There's kind of a running debate about random encounters on this podcast. Um, I know that, uh, some of our listeners, are professed fans of random encounters. I'm personally not a fan of that mechanic. I find it uh, pretty archaic. So I'm I'm down with getting rid of them. I'm I'm okay with them if they're done well. But in Dragon Quest, they had a tendency to be too frequent, kind of like Skies of Arcadia. And just after a while, you're like, okay, stop now, please. Not to digress too much, but there was one thing that always kind of drives me crazy about random encounters. It's when I'm trying to think through a puzzle in a dungeon or something, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, what do I need to do? Do I need to move this around? Do I need to hit the switch? Ah, oh, God, another random encounter. Okay. And it's so disruptive to my thinking that it starts to drive me a little um, batty. And it's especially bad in the caves in Pokemon. So one thing you have to do is you always have to bring... I always bring, like, 20 max repels. Just to keep the damn Pokemon from trying to attack me while I'm trying to figure out what the hell I'm supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. Speaking so, of Pokemon, is this your segue? I suppose so, yeah. Uh, the second announcement that Nintendo made, Pokemon Red and Blue and Yellow, all coming out on the 3DS Virtual Console. I gotta say... Pretty surprised. I never thought that these games would ever make it out to the Game Boy. Or, sorry, to the Game Boy. To the Nintendo 3DS. Uh, it, they had said that under no circumstances were they going to release a neutered version of these games. I can see why, because the trading is still kind of what made these games what they were back in the day. You could take or leave the really simplistic presentation. What really made these games stand out was that they were kind of the first example of a social video game. Um, and that's that's been their bread and butter ever since. But I'm surprised and happy that they've gone out and like invested in the games and made it possible to actually trade via Wi-Fi in a kind of virtual Wi-Fi setup or link cable setup in the in the virtual console versions um i'm 99% retired from pokemon as a competitive game but i think <laughs> I, i'm kind of curious to go back just from the standpoint of nostalgia i suppose and i suspect that i won't be alone uh i will not be joining you sorry i had a feeling i I tried Pokemon back when it was brand new and said, mm, no, nah, not for me. I, I got a little more interested after they went to DS. And I think the main thing that I liked about the DS games was they were a little faster paced, but you could close the lid of the DS and not have to go through a save process or suspend every time you wanted to pause because that, that series really is suited to like little tiny bursts of play and... It was just so cumbersome before you could uh, put the system to sleep by closing the lid. Uh, it was 
a big improvement by just that one addition, that one physical element of the, uh, the console. Yeah, I, well, I've told this story plenty of times, but I got Pokemon for Christmas in 1998 and, um, it grabbed me immediately because it had the feeling of this it's interesting. I felt totally immersed in the world. I was, I was almost immediately invested in that particular world. I, when I got my first like creature and stepped out into, uh, the grass for the first time, I, I actually felt like I was on an adventure and it was, uh, it was a, it was a great feeling and it was, it was fun to discover the monsters, um, as I went and learning about these kind of mythical monsters. It was fun to see an onyx for the first time and be like, holy crap, that thing is gigantic. Um, it was fun trying to figure out how to beat a water gym with my fire monster, uh, my fire Pokemon Charmander, um, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, as time went on, I, I kind of un- discovered that there was a lot more to this game than just catching them all. I discovered that it had a really good battle system that arguably only improved as time went on. And I, I, as I've also said, um, I've kind of fallen off of Pokemon lately because uh, I'm just not a huge fan of where the competitive game is right now. And it's also... Well, it's a bit of a time commitment, and also I've been playing this game for like 15 years, so it's nice to get some different flavors in my palette, um, specifically <laughs> Hearthstone and Madden, both of which scratch a very similar itch of building up a, the right team so that I can execute a particular strategy. Um, the only, like, I appreciate the need to kind of keep it real and make it and act and make it seem as if you're actually training these monsters, but frankly, training a new monster is pretty arduous. So, um, and I just don't have enough time anymore. I'm too busy playing video games, <laughs> other video games. So that's how it goes. Um, the one thing that I'm, I, I sort of suspect that the original Pokemon red and blue and yellow, uh, they're, they look pretty dated. I think a lot of people are going to pick up these games for the first time in 15 years and go, whoa, these games don't hold up especially well, which is, well, we'll see, I guess. People sure love Twitch Plays Pokemon. Kind of makes me wonder if that was the impetus for all of this. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I think I think it honestly might be um a little bit of uh, column a which would be oh hey we went a year without a pokemon game what will we do uh super pokemon mystery dungeon or whatever that's called does not count and i think also you know there is the 10th anniversary or 20th anniversary whoa uh element february uh that's that's when the game is coming out right is on the 10th or 20th anniversary of the japanese launch of green and red oh yeah yeah no i'm pretty sure because it came out in 1996 yeah so I guess, um, you know, shoehorning in some Wi-Fi functionality for trading was easier for them to do than total comprehensive remakes of, uh, 
fire red and leaf green and, and what, what have you. Uh, so that's probably, that's probably, you know, what it boils down to. And I'm fine with them not doing another remake anyway, because their last game was Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. <laughs> and that was actually another reason that I've kind of fallen out of Pokemon recently is that the original, the original third generation games, Emerald, uh, Pokemon Emerald had a thing called the Battle Frontier, which was this really cool, like kind of theme park where you could earn multiple badges. Um, but they were these challenges. So you would walk into a factory or you would walk into one area and it would be like, okay, you can win these battles, but you have to choose from random Pokemon. Um, here's a tournament. Here's a little like adventure area where you try to last as long as possible. So it tested all kinds of things like your knowledge of the different move sets, um, just, um, as well as how powerful your monsters were. Uh, it had one battle with like just random effects, which were kind of annoying, but also just it added a lot of flavor to it. And as an established like kind of hardcore fan by that point, like I really, really, really enjoyed trying to collect all of those badges. And it was really hard, actually. Uh, some of the hardest Pokemon challenges I've ever encountered. So when they weren't, when that Battle Frontier was not in Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire, where it logically should have, and adding insult to injury, like there's a sign that says coming soon, the Battle Frontier, Mm-hmm. which seems to suggest that it's going to be DLC or something, but we have seen nothing of the sort, and Game Freak has pretty much said, yeah, we didn't put it in because it's a hardcore thing, and so we didn't. Des- we decided that it wasn't really like worth our like development time. And I was like, oh, well, okay. Well, now that I've finished Omega Ruby, um, I don't have a ton of reason to keep playing this because I don't have time to get invested in the metagame anymore. Um, and f- to be perfectly honest, for me, it all peaked with Black black 2 and White 2. So, Pokemon, I'm officially retired from you. Um, not Yeah, you say that every single time. <laughs> I, I say that because what I, I think... I don't know. It, it might, this might finally be the, the moment, but we'll see. Like maybe the next game that inevitably comes out next year will be the game that gets me back into it. Um, it tends to run in like cycles for me. So maybe at some point I'll just be like, Oh, you know, maybe I'll just play some on one of the internet simulators. And the next thing I know, like I'm staying up until three in the morning, uh, come trying to, come up with a really good team <laughs> and thinking about uh, entering tournaments on Smogon. We'll see. But not necessarily an RPG, but I don't really care because I like Zelda and you can debate this until the cows come home. Does I don't care. Twilight Princess is getting an HD remake. Jeremy, did you review that game? I did. Wow. Did you like it back in the day? I did. I okay. uh, spent a grueling week uh, working through the game. You know, it was basically like all I did for about four or five days. Uh, and it was a giant pain in the ass because we, you know, that was before 
the Wii had actually launched. So we had like two Wiis that um, Nintendo had given us. Um, since I was doing the Twilight Princess review, I basically stayed home that week and kept one of the Wiis. And then Game Videos needed the uh, Mark McDonald and his crew needed the other Wii to do video capture of stuff. Uh, but we had to like swap the one set of component cables they gave us back and forth. Uh, we only had one one component cable, so I would like give it to them when they needed to do good video capture, and then come back home and use crappy video cables, and then they'd trade off with me. So it was like this really weird setup. But yeah, despite the fact that it was a really pretty rough um, review session for that and a lot of other reasons, including the fact that there were some pretty tricky puzzles in that game. And uh, when I got stuck on stuff, I basically had to like say, well, I'm stuck for now and go take a nap or something and hope that the answer would come to me when I slept or woke up, which fortunately always happened. But um, despite all of that, I really enjoyed the game. Uh, and I know people really hate the the slow start, but I don't have a problem with that. It's kind of setting up... Um, you know, the, the environment, it really does a good job of making, you know, of kind of pulling you in. And in my opinion, to that links particular version of Hyrule. And I thought the motion graphic, the motion controls were fine. Like they weren't too obstructive or uh, overly fussy. And they just kind of added a little bit of uh, physicality to the action. Um, I don't know. I, I liked the game a lot. I really enjoyed it. I powered through that game, and the second I beat the final boss, I sat down and started writing a review and filed it a couple of hours later to be one of the first on the internet to have the the game reviewed. So it was a it was a marathon session. But uh, despite despite really like the fact that marathon review sessions are not fun, uh, I came away feeling good about the game. So I'm looking forward to checking out the HD version. When you do a marathon review session, it can be a little dangerous because you start getting Stockholm Syndrome with that game. Like, you're so disoriented and out of sorts. But Man, so, I, I don't. I, I just get more angry at a game when the longer really? I spend with it. Like, if I am, you know, basically bound to that game and like, any minor flaw just makes me furious and makes me hate the game more. So, uh, so I don't really have that Stockholm Syndrome uh, problem. I, I basically go the other direction. Like a marathon session is more likely to make me hate a game than to love it. Hmm, interesting. Well, I think, I think the fact that Twilight Princess came out on the Wii kind of did a, it didn't help. It, it didn't help it in the long run because people started to view it as kind of a gimmick. One of the weirder things that I've seen is, when Twilight Princess came out, all anybody ever did was crap on Wind Waker and say, well, Wind Waker was terribly flawed game and it had, and it was half finished. And Twilight Princess is a game that we've been waiting for this entire time. It's darker and grittier and it has, um, and it's not, and it's like actually finished this time around and they have a lot of dungeons and this is great. And then almost immediately came like a massive backlash against it, like, right away and people were like oh it's way too slow to start and look at some of these like items they stink i i hate the thing that there's like the one item where you're riding along on the wall <laughs> which you never use again i don't think um and 
people, I, I think I'm understating things a bit, but people tend to have really strong reactions to Zelda games. I would just say that Twilight Princess is my personal favorite of the 3D Zeldas. Um, Ocarina of Time, I've, I have finished Ocarina of Time. I can never quite, it's just not a game that I can play for some reason anymore because I don't know, like something about it. Like I just can't get into it. Uh, Majora's Mask, uh, it, Bob loves Majora's Mask. He can, he can probably tell you like all the things that he loves about it. Wind Waker for me is half finished. Um, and Skyward Sword is boring. So that leaves Twilight Princess, which I, I love the art style. I love Midna. Um, I actually played it on the GameCube, which I think is kind of the way that it was originally meant to be played. And I'm really hoping that Twilight Princess HD is like, I'm kind of curious. Do you think that they'll include the motion controls? Did they say? Um, I am thinking no. They've, um, they've switched it back. <sighs> so it's like the GameCube version. Uh, so it's okay. a lefty again. Thank so God. I think with that in mind, um, the idea behind switching the, the control, the, the sword orientation of the world, uh, mirroring in Twilight Princess for Wii was so that you would have sort of a one to one analog for Link's sword arm and your own Wii remote arm, which you're supposed to hold in your right hand. So I, I would take that to mean, I don't know this for certain, but I, I would take that to mean that um, they've dropped the motion controls or maybe made it like super optional, but I think it's going to be just control pad based. Okay. That would be great if that's the case. Um, I personally was living in Japan. I had just moved to Japan when it came out <clears throat> and I had been looking forward to Twilight Princess so much for like two years at that point. <clears throat> I had a friend buy it and ship it to me. Because it was kind of annoying to buy things in the U.S. Um, long story. But anyway, I was sick for like a week. <clears throat> and me and my girlfriend uh, spent that entire week just splitting back and forth. Um, we were playing separate games. And we would each get like a two or three hour block to play Twilight Princess. And <clears throat> she... And we were kind of racing to finish the game first, but the main thing was we just didn't want to spoiler, spoil each other on the puzzles. <laughs> um, and what happened after that. And so like when some, when one of us was playing, the other had to leave the room or like go, go for a walk or something, which was pretty tough because we were in this, we were in this little Japanese apartment. Um, so we had a, we had a separate room, but you effectively had to, like sequester yourself and like go study Japanese or something while the other was playing. But, um, so because I was sick and had like a whole week to just kind of drink it in and there's that wonderful dungeon, which one of the best dungeon Zelda dungeons I've ever played where you go to the, to the, the Yeti mansion and he's making the soup and you're getting the components for the soup and you don't even realize it's a dungeon until suddenly it is, and you're fighting a mini boss, and you're getting an item, and you're like, "Oh my god, this is so great!" Uh, yeah, that's like my overriding memory of Twilight Princess. Good stuff. Mm. All right, last thing before we wrap up, 
Mother 3 coming to Wii U Virtual Console in Japan, do you think that means anything? Or should Americans just uh, keep on walking? Um, I would say if somewhere in the bowels of Nintendo there is a fully working, fully translated localization of Mother 3 that was never released in the U.S., sure, that'd be great. We can be excited and look forward to that showing up on American Virtual Console. But otherwise, if if they never plan to localize Mother 3, um, we're not going to see it. There's no way Nintendo is going to release a fully unlocalized uh, Japanese-language role-playing game on Virtual Console, and I really don't see them investing the resources into reprogramming and, and localizing uh, a 10-year-old Game Boy Advance game for Virtual Console. I just don't think I don't think that would be a money-making move for them. So uh, it's a mystery. Like Earthbound Zero, Earthbound Beginnings, that was a nice surprise. But it was easy for them to do because that ROM existed, like a legitimate translated localized ROM. Uh, from the NES days. I don't know about Mother 3, so who can say? Yeah, I'm not seeing it. But, I mean, there's always a fan sub, I suppose, if you want to play it. By all accounts, a very good game. Um, I assume you've played it. Uh, yeah, I have. I haven't beaten it, but I've, I've definitely played it. Hmm. Well, here's hoping that Nintendo... Well... I don't know, that might be a little too um, hopeful. Uh, it's probably, I, I agree with you, it's probably never coming out here, but um, I don't know. I believe in miracles, so I guess we'll find out. But in any case, lots of good stuff coming out from Nintendo in terms of RPG content in the new year. Um, we're getting Xenoblade Chronicles X, which I believe, um, uh, I think a lot of people are reviewing at the moment. Um, we're getting Fire Emblem Fates next year, um, and we're getting, uh, we're finally getting Dragon Quest 7 and 8, which is terrific. Um, it's going to be a great lead up to Dragon Quest 11 whenever that comes out. I agree, and I do think the fact that these uh, games are coming to America is a good sign that we will see the NX version of Dragon Quest Eleven and, and possibly the 3DS version. I've always been of the opinion that we will get the NX and PS4 versions for sure, and that the 3DS version will never come out here. Um, uh, it's hard to say. Um, I don't really know how that's going to work out. Um, I mean, with, yeah, with it's the 3DS all games coming now. The the ports. I think that does kind of open the door for the 3DS version of 11. Yeah, it's all conjecture, obviously. Uh, the 3DS version struck me as uh, Japan covering its bases and making sure that they had a version that would appeal domestically and a version that would potentially appeal internationally as well. Um, interesting choice, too, because in at least from a visual standpoint, they're two very different games. So they've had to invest effectively double the resources, but I think it'll pay off pretty well. Um, do you know if it'll be exactly the same story? 
uh, 4.11 across yeah. platforms. Yeah, it's um, actually exactly the same game, if I'm not mistaken, just presented differently. I don't think that there's going to be a substantial difference in terms of plot, just kind of how the games work. What I'm kind of curious is if if it's released here, like normally, do you think Square Enix would publish it? I don't know. Who's publishing the, the 3DS ports? I think it's Nintendo, right? I think it's Nintendo. Which might explain why it was being, uh, why it was announced on the Nintendo Direct. Yeah, but Square Enix is publishing, um, Final Fantasy Explorers. So, uh, actually, I'm going to look on Amazon to see if it actually says who's the publisher. Um, it does not. So that's that's a fun mystery for the future. The, the reason I was asking is because I'm just wondering, like, if Nintendo ended up taking the NX and the 3DS versions, um, normally I would say, like, Treehouse would end up localizing them. Nope, that's, <laughs> but not, that's not the case. Uh, no, Square Enix would end up localizing them. Yeah, I mean, with the, the DS games... Um, even the ones Nintendo published, they were localized, not by Square Enix internally, but by a studio that Square Enix hired. Oh, okay. So, that makes sense. So I think, I mean, I'm sure it changes from game to game, generation to generation, situation to situation, but just going by what previously happened, um, I don't think Treehouse would be localizing. Uh, it would be probably plus alpha again or alpha plus whatever they're called or maybe eight four i think they did a dragon quest localization mm. um so yeah that's most likely how it'll work out it, those are those are really big localizations so um i mean dragon quest seven you've, you've probably seen the photo right of the binders like the wall of binders that was the japanese script for the game I have not seen that photo, um, actually. It is a it is a bookshelf, like, you know, a four-foot-high bookshelf, just packed with huge three-ring binders that, that comprise the game script. Uh, it's just a ridiculous amount of content. So I don't really see... I don't see Nintendo devoting their internal resources to localizing games of that size. I mean, 8.4 was contracted to do Xenoblade Chronicles X. That's not a secret. And... Um, that's a, you know, that's a first-party Nintendo game. Well, regardless, Dragon Quest fans can finally stop panicking, at least for a little bit, about the franchise's future in the U.S. Um, crisis averted, we're finally getting Dragon Quest Seven here in the U.S., and I think we're all excited. Welcome back. We're here now with Legend of Heroes Trails in the Skies, first and second chapter, I believe, editor Jess Chavez, um, who is joining me all the way from Australia. And we're going to talk a little bit about the localization. Jess, how's the curse of Kiseki going? Is everything okay? Like, has the curse reared its ugly head? It's actually gone smoother now that it's out than I was expecting. So fingers crossed. There are there's a lot of concern about bugs and that sort of thing. You kind of had to 
kind of push it out the door at the last minute. So it's kind of good that it's all holding up. Um, it's well known by this point that the localization was a pretty harrowing experience. Have you fully recovered? Uh, it doesn't really feel like it. <laughs> what was kind of what was it like, kind of being in the middle of that? Uh, kind of never ending. Why won't this game end? I mean, I've been on it since. If you count the first chapter, I started working on it back in two thousand and nine. Jeez. Yeah, so that's, what, six years of your life just spent editing so much text. Because people don't really, I don't think, appreciate when it comes to being a localization editor. Like, just how much time you spend you spend in spreadsheets editing not just dialogue, but items and terminology and just trying to keep everything straight. That's definitely the hardest part and why a project like Trails in the Sky is probably the scariest thing I've ever worked on. Scariest thing? Why would you call it that? It's not just huge. I mean, the volume of dialogue is pretty off-putting, I think, for most companies. But uh, the amount of terminology that has to be shared between the two, and then also has to make sense for later games, it's just the amount of detail in these two titles is insane. Keeping a track is really tough, and... I have to give a lot of props to our QA team for, especially one of our one in particular who's a huge Kaseki fan. She's been great at like keeping all that in order. Yeah, I was reading um, Jason Schreier's really excellent article that was kind of going over the entire process. So it's over on Kotaku. You should definitely check it out. And he was just talking about like for the past. I don't know, like year, like leading up until the point where everything was just finalized, like the QA team and and um, the person you're talking about, Brittany, were just throwing tons and tons of revisions and bug fixes and like so many little tweaks uh, coming into the script. And there, it's kind of a rolling process too, because as you probably know, Cold Steel was being sort of worked on at the same time. So we had to keep updating even after we'd updated. We're like, oh, this means this. Oh, no, this means this. Everything had to be changed. What percentage of the script did you actually end up writing? Can you, like, give kind of a base number? Hmm. Um, all said was all said and done, I about 50% wasn't edited yet when I got it. Okay. Because, like, I apologies if I'm kind of, like, making a hash out of like the actual process but a lot of it is a translator is giving you like a block of raw text and you're just coming in and you're editing it into something that's readable but a lot of that is like the process of writing did you have to do any translation as well no no the translation was pretty all set there and it was checked by other translators once it was passed in and it was already set up pretty nicely. It made sense, but a lot of it, as you know, with raw translation comes off a bit awkwardly. Sometimes it doesn't make sense in context or it doesn't connect the way it's supposed to. So you do a lot of rewriting that way. So uh, Trails in the Sky is kind of known for having this like really detailed and interesting, just kind of interesting backstory lore, tons of characters with dialogue and names and everything. Um, was it especially tough 
to just kind of flesh out all of the details and keep everything straight. Yeah, I actually had a whiteboard upstairs with the NPCs because that was the portion that I did the most work on for this game. I had a running list and all these arrows connecting this person to this person, who they were in the previous game. Because I'm not sure if you've seen the list, but I tallied up how many there were, and there are about 600. Wow. (laughs) That's amazing. And all of them had names pretty much, right? Like, that was the crazy thing, is, like, there aren't a lot of generic characters in Trails in the Sky. Nope. They all had names, and they all said varying degrees of important or silly things, or they have their own stories, and it evolves as the game goes on. It's madness. Is there, in a good way. At some point, do you just start getting loopy and seeing, like, like, and just start coming up with, like, crazy things for people to say? Uh, I have to confess it has happened once or twice, but I try to hold the madness to things that don't affect the game too much, like the treasure chest messages or some system tech, some item, silliness in the items. Uh, can but, you think of any specific examples that, like, jump out at you? I think for the treasure chest this time, I've had a few messages crying out for help, saying we've been stuck on this game for a while, or (laughs) there were some terrible penguin jokes that got put in there, and I'm not sure why I did that. All game developers cry out for help in one way or another. Um, I was just playing Fallout 4, and there's a quest about people going insane from working too much overtime, and I felt like a bit of a cry for help from the Bethesda team. Yeah, I could, with a game like that, too, there, that must be such a trial to actually work on. I could see them all begging for help. Our QA team was had cute little mad notes in the QA bug list. <laughs> Everyone went loopy. What's it like? So you're a writer. Um, you've written a book. You can find it on Kindle. Um, what's the name of the book? Dead Endings. Dead Endings. So a little plug for your book right there. Thank you. What's it like to, as a writer, to be have so much control over the story and yet no control? Because, I mean, it's already been written. The story is already there. Like, the best you can do is add texture. Yeah, a lot of it's you. It's kind of a service role. You just want to, you want what they had originally intended to come across. So you're just trying your best to make sure that the actual author of the game gets what they wanted people to act to play. It's it's kind of tough to be in such a passive role. Some things you want to change, some things you applaud, but it is hard being a sort of a passenger in this drive. What I'm kind of curious, what aspects of Trails in the Sky really spoke to you as, I don't know, a writer, um, maybe a fan of the series? I think the level of development the characters got Especially in SC. I mean, if people play the first one, they the character Agate, is, he's kind of abrasive. But SC really sort of works on him as a character. It explains a lot of the back. You can see him grow. The, all of these characters sort of had this amazing development. I was really impressed. Like, And it's not just them. It's the NPCs, too. The level of work that went into making sure everybody sort of had something to say that was worth listening to was impressive. Especially Estelle, right? I mean, she grows a huge amount through, especially into the second chapter. Like, the second chapter is very much her story. 
Uh, yes, and it's so refreshing that like these characters make sane decisions. And whoops, <laughs> that was the cat. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, that they um not just that they grow up, they make mature decisions based on as their maturity level goes through all these experiences. You see them making better decisions, and it, for Estelle especially, that was really cool to watch. And. How tricky, I've got to ask, like, how tricky was it to kind of balance out the the potential romantic feelings that she would have had with her adopted brother? Because the, there are definitely hints in there, but the the story kind of plays it off a lot. Um, That's actually the way it was originally kind of written. It wasn't too hard. I mean, you could see it, she was sort of realizing that it was happening and stuff, but the, the script was very subtle about it. And it, it kind of evolved naturally, which is very nice. What kind of... I, I'm, I'm curious. What kind of texture did you write, did you kind of add to Estelle as a character? Um, that Kind of your own personal touch. I think I made her a little less airheady. Um, more of just... I like to think I put a little more... Not backbone, but... She was definitely a little tougher, I thought. Because I thought she just, she deserved to be a tough character, and she was. But sometimes she would say very strange things, like, what's an elevator? <laughs> it's like, oh. And she's kind of made fun of a lot, um, especially in the first game. Like, she's um, kind of the butt of the jokes, I suppose you would say. <laughs> she is a bit of a country bumpkin. It's not really her fault. She grew up in a really rural area, but, yeah, she... She has a lot of strange ideas about the real world. But but Joshua and Estelle, like, they have a really strong relationship, especially in the first game, and that it, it really grows. Would you kind of say it's the heart of the story, like, in general, like, more so than the politics or anything like that? I think so, especially the way that relationship kind of starts and the depth that's added to it over the because of the politics, because of the terrible, terrible and great experiences that they're they're in, it actually really helped Estelle sort of flesh out her feelings. So the original Trails in the Sky kind of famously ended on a cliffhanger. <laughs> How much uh, mail did you get from people desperately wanting to play the second game? Mountains and mountains of mountains of mail. It was so terrible, especially when after the game release and stuff and fans were wondering when the next one would come out and stuff. And we'd already begun the process by handing it off to Carpe Folger and they were working on it, but you couldn't say anything. So we continually got mail for years saying, why why have you guys abandoned us or why won't you guys finish this? And I'm like, but we are. It's being worked on, I promise. And, And then, of course, you had to spend the past like year or so working 14 hour days or more to get the to get everything ready and fixed and finalized it yeah it wasn't so bad when i originally was working on the project it was kind of just in an overseeing capacity and it wasn't until i was till i ended up doing the editing part when i only had six months then it got to crunch like bad crunch but easier when you're working from home i guess What's the story behind the Breakfast Safari achievement? Well, it's 
a little bit of that madness that sort of leaked into the first game when I did the treasure chest and realized that I had a chance to put in something silly. Uh, when working on SC, I noticed that all the pigeons had name tags. And you can't necessarily talk to them, but this gave us an opportunity in the Steam version to make it possible. And I thought if there are pigeons that can be talked to, they need to be talked to. So you have to talk to every single pigeon? You don't have to talk to every single pigeon, but they've all been named after breakfast foods. <laughs> <laughs> and just engaging with the pigeon, as you should do with every character in this game, will reveal their name. And if you find the perfect breakfast combination, which I think is bacon, eggs, and golden toast, then you get the achievement. So did you have to do all of the achievements? Like, those were all yours? Pretty much. They just asked, you know, what do you think would be worth it for people to run around and do for achievements? So I made them as silly as I could. You know, that's always the correct answer. Like, I, achievements should just, like, they're not something to be taken in, in, in incredibly seriously. They should just, you should just have fun with them if you can. I totally agree. I mean, the team did add in some basic ones, like when you finish Chapter 1, Chapter 2, the whole game. But I think, you know, talking to pigeons, fighting penguins, killing people with food, these are all really important things to achieve in this game. I totally agree. All right, let's really quickly jump into some burning questions from people on Twitter. Since those questions, they are burning. Um, <laughs> a lot of questions about the third game, because this was originally a trilogy. So they wrap up the story for the second chapter. They, they wrap up the overarching story in the second chapter, but the third chapter, if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, it kind of adds a lot of extra stuff to it, I suppose, like it fills out certain things. It is sort of a supplementary kind of extra. It's not really the third chapter, it's just called the third. So it's, you know, there's a lot of cool little character stuff, but you don't need it for the overall, so to speak. Okay, so it's almost like an epilogue? Or an addendum? <laughs> an addendum. The, oh, it's I, like the appendices from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. It's the Silmarillion. Maybe. No. There you go. Um, at Josh Car or at JS Carpenter, sorry, wants to know, lots of plot reveals in second chapter were hinted at in first chapter. How did you make sure to get those right? Did you play the other games? Uh, I had not actually played any of the future games, but luckily we have a ton of experts, including the translator, people who helped it with the Steam version, and our own crazy Kiseki fangirl, and they knew all of this stuff. So anything I missed from that was connected to the first chapter and actually had greater meaning later on was caught by that team. I mean, this is... How many games are in this series at this point? Quite a few, right? Yeah, so Cold Steel is number six, and then there's Cold Steel two, seven games. <laughs> and these games tend to get pretty intense with their lore, so it really helps to have an in-house um, uh, fan slash encyclopedia. It really does, and we're always finding out new stuff, like just working on Cold Steel you get a lot of face palm moments like, so that's what that meant. 
Game 6 explains a single word dropped by an NPC hidden in an alleyway in Game 1. <laughs> Were there any other, like, baseball moments of, like, oh, so that's what that meant, or, like, things that you learned? Uh, I think a lot of the... Well, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but a lot of the, the stuff around the bad guys um, that came out later, like their their name meanings and little... Hints they dropped in, in the first game. Um, there's some cool stuff hidden in the books. It wasn't really a facepalm moment, but more of like a, oh, oh, crazy. Uh, if you read the, which one is it? Not the, it's not the Cornelia. I'm drawing a blank here. Uh, what? Oh, it's the Doll Knight, that's it. Uh, make sure to read the Doll Knight, because it drops something that's kind of like, oh, crap. <laughs> At long time no siege wants to know who is the best girl and why is it Rena? Uh, I think he's talking about Agate. I don't care if he's not a girl, but he's still the best. <laughs> why is well? We already explained that part. <laughs> no, Ren, Ren's pretty cool. I know long time no siege. He's a huge, huge, huge Ren fan. I'll, you, I'll concede. She's pretty cool. Do you see yourself working on a game of this scale ever again? Coming off of finishing it, I'm fervently hoping not to. It was a very educational experience, but I'm not sure I'd ever want to repeat something like this again. A few people were kind of wondering, did the original Japanese script, was it kind was it as lively as this one? Did it have as much personality as the, the final English script, or was it more straightforward? I think it had a lot of the base for the personality, but I'd like to think we added a little bit of little bit of punch in there. I mean, all the stuff they said was interesting to begin with and stuff, but the little speech tweaks or the way they delivered the lines, I'd say, I'd say we delivered that. At Nate Neo, or at Nate underscore Neo wants to know. How did you keep track of so many unique character dialogue events in the second chapter? Because the number of them is staggering. I, as I mentioned before, I had a whiteboard with a lot of key NPCs and lots and lots of arrows and doodles saying, oh, this person is dating this person. This person is marrying this person. This person owns five cats. Yes, this is a cat that's speaking. Um, I did a lot of tracking on the board and... That list of NPCs that I made up also had detailed notes on the side. So aunts, uncles, relations, talking cats, everybody had their own little special tab. You know, I'm friends with a few game designers, and one of them told me that, like, a good chunk of game design is just spreadsheets. Inputting stuff into spreadsheets and keeping track of all the data, making sure that you're keeping everything. Uh accurate and that goes for writing in video <laughs> games and that goes for crunching the numbers and keeping everything balanced um, it's a lot of elbow grease i guess you could say vert digital elbow grease <laughs> it, it definitely i can't imagine like the writing of something like trails how many boards and spreadsheets they must have had because Brittany's done a wonderful job of tallying this stuff and i think she's kind of listed about 7,000 unique terms, something ridiculous. And it's not even 
it's not just making sure that you have all of the terms accurately aligned, right? Like making sure that one an item is consistent from one instance to another, but kind of keeping the tone the um, consistent too, right? Like just in terms of how you write the characters, like all of that. Oh, absolutely. And for this one, since I have all the original FC uh, files from the game that I'd worked on before, I was able to go back and look at characters and make sure their speeches lined up as best as we could. And you think you're being really clever in the first game by adding like cool little speech ticks or, you know, the old man kind of year or different accents and stuff. You're like, yeah, I did an awesome job. And then you get to the next game and realize you've got 700 NPCs to make sure are all the same. You're like, oh, why did I do that? It's a pretty well-known story that the first chapter, you guys were like, all right, we're going to localize this trilogy. And then you looked at just the sheer amount of text that you had to localize, and you went, oh, God, what have we done? (laughs) Was it looking at the first game and realizing that, or was it just looking at the entirety of the trilogy and realizing that the the second chapter was literally like double the first chapter? I think it actually was just the first game. I hadn't seen the second chapter's files in any great detail. I knew it was bigger, but I don't think anybody expected the amount of work that the first game took. Like, I basically had to remove myself from the office just to focus on one game. And that's kind of unheard of. At XSEED, you tend to juggle multiple projects, and you you know you've got a lot of hats to wear in the office. But it was just so so much that I had to like only focus on one and work from home. And after we finished, we realized that to have that much dedicated resource only on one game was pretty draining. Especially for a game that I don't want to cast aspersions on a console, but the PSP, which in 2011 was on its way out at least in the U.S. PSP will never die. <laughs> well, it came out, second chapter came out on PSP here. Was that a Falcom thing, or did XE just be like, you know what, screw it, we're going to put it on the, the PSP as well? I mean, we could have just released it on Steam or something, but so many fans support supported it when we originally released the first game on PSP. We wanted to make sure they'd be able to continue on the platform that they had all their save data. So I was kind of like, you know what? You guys are awesome. We're going to release this anyway. Long live the PSP. Long live the PSP. (laughs) Um, One more question, and I'm sorry, but I can't pronounce your Twitter handle. How did you manage to make every line that comes out of Oliver's mouth so perfect? Does his spirit live in you? (laughs) Olivier's spirit just lives in everybody. Um, he just says dumb stuff and it really is easy to work on. I think even like the translators, a lot of the time, the raw translation just says perfectly the silliness that he's trying to convey. And he, everything's just an innuendo or a flirtation. So I don't know, maybe the wine helps. I'm glad that, by the way, that I've managed to mispronounce like half the characters' names so far in this, in this interview, but it's an RPG. There's a lot of reading going on. I mispronounce everything. It's okay. I could be totally mispronouncing it too. These are just the way I hear them in my head. Yeah, I Yeah, I know how that how that goes. Like I was like kind of freaking out before this podcast even started going. Estelle? Estelle? 
Like, <laughs> how do you say that name? I'm so like agate, 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 agate. <laughs> nah, I think I think however it works for you that is the best way to go for it. Is the Trail series your favorite RPG to have worked on? Who? Since my brain is still filled with trails, probably both favorite and most daunting and most scarring, I suppose. How long have you have you been working on game localization? Because your Moby Games profile um, like lists several games, but I've heard that you've also worked on Lunar Silver Star Harmony. Is that right? Yeah, that was, oh yeah, that's way back in the day. I uh, actually joined Exceed back in 2008, so it's been a fair number of years, okay. over seven at this point. Seven years. I mean, what have you kind of learned about localization in that time? That you should always have a stocked liquor cabinet. Uh, no, um, I guess to pace yourself and remember the original goal is to make sure people have a great experience. It's very easy when you're tired or you feel stressed out to just sort of be like, ah, oh, good enough keep moving on and stuff and something that we really try hard at exit is to remember that it's not good enough you need to take a second look at it how much do you think a, a good localization can improve a game or elevate it i think it can really sell a game i mean games like trails that are i mean the story is what people are coming in for it lives and dies on its dialogue so it's it will sell a game like that. I think it's more dangerous when it tanks a game, though. It's a lot easier for it to ruin a game, I think. Can you remember any like, particular arguments over how to tackle a particular translation or, or scene in Trails in the Sky? Um, there are actually some quests that are a little, we'd call a bit old-fashioned, especially in the male-female department, and it was not something we really, I really care for these days and stuff, but that was the original script, and that's what I made sure it stayed as. It's not my job to sort of change that thing, but it, it does sort of give you a bit of inner turmoil when there, you get that damsel in distress stuff. <laughs> so so you're not one to take liberties with the actual script. You're, you, like, you try to stay as close to it as possible. I do try. I mean, I'll I'll punch up many. That's just what editors do. We try to make it enjoyable and get it across. But I don't like to change the intent of the text. I'm not the author. I'm just, as you're saying, shepherding it along. Were there any particularly Japanese like scenes or cultural um, or examples of like kind of a cultural dialogue that like a an, an American player or, or an English-speaking player would have a hard time with that you had to kind of finagle into something um, and localize it? Um, can you think of any specific ex- examples? Hmm. It wasn't really the text. Uh, one of the quests involves a peeping Tom at a bathhouse. <laughs> which is always a bit like... I mean, people can see what a bathhouse is if they're playing the game and but the whole idea is so common in Japan. I worried it. I worry sometimes that it might not translate well. But I think the dialogue was pretty clear without being awkward on that point. 
a lot of people talk about just how lively the writing is in Trails in the Sky. And I I mean, I suppose a lot of that would be credited to you and that must be pretty gratifying um, because I suppose that's the stamp that you can leave on the game, right? Because it's not your story, but it is your dialogue. You are leaving your stamp on these characters. Yeah, it's what I like to do, but I can't really take full credit for either of the games. We had some really great translators on the first one who made some of the lines we got for Olivier were just perfect as is. And for the, for SC, the entire main scenario was done by a different editor. And though we did tweak quite a bit, we did try to bring things more in line with the first game. It was mostly NPC work I did. And uh, our QA house, Brittany in particular, did a great job with some characters too, fixing them during the QA period. Cause She's, as I mentioned, she's a huge fan of the game, so she made sure those were on point. It really is sort of a whole teamwork kind of thing. But it does feel nice when people, they see some of the lines you put in, and you're like, yes! So, are you done with localization? Are you officially out? No, I'm still sort of working as a gun for hire, and I've actually been doing a bit more work for Xseed. I did the books on Cold Steel. I love working on the books for these games. So never quite have my toe out of the water. So when you say working on the books, you mean like the supplementary material, art books, that kind of thing? Uh, all the Trails games have these sort of mini novellas, and they've just gotten mm-hmm. bigger and more complex. And the book in Cold Steel is actually the, a proper size for a book. Mm-hmm. It was about 30,000 words. So you're continuing to work on that. Do you play any RPGs on your, on your, when you're just kind of on the side? Do you have time to play RPGs anymore? I do now, but it's... I mean, I'm actually... I'm still stuck back in, like, 2012 when Skyrim came out. I'm playing Skyrim <laughs> still. But I... It's hard to play games, because I'm looking at it from a work standpoint, and I'm like, ah, I can see where this dialogue tree is going, or ah, I see a typo. Are there any localizers that you're particularly, like, a big fan of, that you're like, wow, they do really good work, and, like, I admire them, and I want to, like, kind of be up to those standards? Oh, I mean, all the classic guys, Woosley and just Jeremy Blaston is really good. And I, I just honestly haven't been able to play an RPG for pleasure in such a long mm-hmm. time. That wasn't one of our own titles that I'm just not up to date on things. How has being a localization specialist kind of changed your outlook on RPGs? It makes me appreciate them a lot more. I There's such work and care that goes into them. It I don't know, it's hard not to, to applaud the teams that work on them. There's just so much effort, especially now that I know the the translation, the editing, the QA process. It's so, for video games in general, it's hard not to appreciate that. I Just the amount of text, like I can't really wrap my mind around it. Like, <laughs> I think that there's more text in Trails in the Sky than in Lord of the Rings. Like the whole trilogy? Not even just the whole trilogy. Like I I calculated this for that article and it actually crashed my word multiple times. It slowed down my computer. But when I got to the end, it was like 1.5 times war and peace. Well, it's just like when you talk about people who are used to working in movies, writing dialogue for a game and they come in 
And not only do they have to write just all of the scenes, but they have to write all of the tertiary stuff um, and then record all of it. And it's not just, oh, let's record like a love scene. It's recording stuff like, let's go. Oh, we should look over there. You know, like all of the little basic things. Those are so hard to do, too, because those get shown off first. And since there's no context for them, they often they're hard in recording. It's like, hooray, even though it could be very sad. Hooray. Or, yeah, the recording part is pretty tough, too. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't necessarily translation, but I had to write scripts um, when I was working for a company in Japan. Um, and we had to do recording and it's time consuming. Did, were you involved with the recording at all? Uh, not for this game, but when I moved into being the manager, I did several recordings, including Rune Factory 4. Mm-hmm. And I know exactly how you feel. Because you have to do like multiple takes in- inevitably. And so you can get hung up on like a single line for like a whole afternoon. Not a single line, but a single scene for a whole afternoon, right? Yeah, and if you don't get it right, then you're kind of stuck with what you have in the end, which is really unfortunate sometimes. So, can you, ultimately, like, what do you think Trails in the Sky, like, first chapter and second chapter, like, what makes them stand out from other RPGs, and, like, like what kind of they, what do they kind of bring to the genre? Suffering. Just kidding. <laughs> No, but uh, the the amount of suffering that did go into all of these titles, I think, speaks to just how much they're worth. It's not just because they're big games or they have a lot of dialogue, but I think anyone can tell you tell you who's played these two titles has is just blown away by the amount of care that goes into every character. This isn't throwaway dialogue. It's not random people saying random things just to try to pad out a game. It's a whole world. It's not like the, you know, open world RPGs that we play today and stuff, but it feels like it's alive. All the little books, all the little recipes, everything you can do, just these are living, breathing worlds. It's the meatiest RPG I've ever worked on or ever played. Can you give any advice um, to people who are playing Trails in the Sky SC right now? Like anything in particular that they should be looking for um, that you're particularly proud of or... Just something that they don't want to miss? I would recommend that they hit every quest they possibly can. They're not just for getting new items or for getting their BP counter up or gaining whatever. It actually, you'll see really cool things later on if you do these quests. Follow Anton around. Uh, make sure you have Olivier in your party for certain things. Definitely check check treasure chests. And... Oh, hit the casino. It's so addictive. All right, Jessica Chavez, thanks for coming on the show, and good luck with Trails of Cold Steel, which I think is coming out really soon, right? That's what we're shooting for. All right, well, good luck, and I look forward to playing it. Oh, thank you for having me, and yep, please look forward to it. And we're back, and Jeremy's here with me again. Jeremy, uh, we're going to end the podcast now, but do you have anything to plug before we go? Um, usgamer.net is really good. It's just a, a really nice website that I think everyone should visit. 
I yeah, I know. I love that place. <laughs> They're great. <laughs> um, and where can we find you on social medias? Oh, I'm on Twitter. It's it's really sad, but I'm there. Uh, so you can follow me at Gamespite. And of course, you can find me at the underscore Catbot on Twitter. And follow US Gamer on all of the social media channels. We're US Gamer on Facebook, US Gamer Net on on YouTube and Twitch. Um, still taking submissions on that contest. Um, send me your best RPG screenshot. Can be humorous, profound, creative, artistic. Do you maybe have a good story? Please send it my way. The winner gets a free copy of Fallout 4, which is great. Speaking of Fallout 4, we are going to be doing our big podcast for Fallout 4, all of the reactions, all of the discussion next week. So by that point, maybe you'll have a chance, had a chance to play through it, appreciate it, digest it. And we can really get into maybe not spoiler territory, but we can get pretty in depth into it. So it's going to be a nice, big, fun podcast. But until then, for Jeremy Parrish, Jessica Chavez, and myself, I've been Cat Bailey. Thanks for listening. And until next time, happy adventuring.